Welcome to Pivot to First. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel. I'm the CTO at Pivot CX. Every day I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the industry with one goal, turning hiring and people strategy into a competitive advantage. Hi, I'm Pivot CX co-founder Mike Seidel. Today I'm joined by David Bernstein and our special guest, Jason Ezradi. Jason's the co-founder and CEO at Brightfield. Brightfield's a workforce analytics company that is helping the Global 2000 design their workforce and get it precisely right. I know workforce analytics is a really, really broad topic, and maybe one of the first things you can do for us, Jason, is really kind of clarify what is it exactly that you're doing at Brightfield? Yes, thank you, and thanks for having me. Um, We have a workforce uh, analytics platform called Talent Data Exchange. We go by TDX for short. And what that does is brings in transactional uh, data, actual transactional data, and it makes sense of what's actually happening in the wild uh, to make a market reality out of it. What's normal? What's typical? What can I expect uh, to pay for a given rate? How long should I expect to wait to be able to find someone of a given uh, type of talent? And we do that all over the world uh, and all the way down to the granularity of skill and city. So um, from that is a a variety of different use cases that, that companies can leverage to either find talent, save money, uh, or otherwise find optimal sourcing scenarios. So tell, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. I think I read on your, your uh, profile, you started Brightfield in 2006. I think it was Brightfield Strategies at the time. Tell us a little bit about the journey that got you into starting Brightfield and, and you know, how your company's grown. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I started uh, in the space um, about five years prior with a VMS company, a vendor management system. And that is the, the type of technology that creates the data that now we're obsessed with consuming and making intelligence out of. And so it was an easy leap for me uh, after five years of building out configurable VMS technology to make those transactions happen, to bring in project transactions and SOWs. After thinking about that and seeing the billions and billions of dollars worth of transactions globally that were sitting in databases that people weren't mining. And the main reason that people weren't mining them is they didn't have crystal clear clarity on what are the important questions to ask and how to answer them with data. And unfortunately, in our space, um, we don't have the luxury of a skew. We don't have a conforming indexing unit to say this is what work is. So when we want to do analytics, everyone compare against this thing. Uh, a Dell Latitude laptop is a thing. This is um, in work world. It's lots of shades of gray that we have to make sense of. So that was that was part of why, why, why us, why now? So what kind of market intelligence does Brightfield provide? Uh, you know, what, what, when would I call you guys up and go, I need help? Well, it's uh, right now, the, the Vogue statement is I need to save money. So if you're a Fortune 2000 buyer and you have a feeling that you're paying more than you need to um, and, you're, and you have a savings mandate, that's an easy thing to do uh, for us, especially as markets um, start to soften. Um, However, we uh, are also able to track what's happening in the overall marketplace. And right now we don't necessarily see a softening in hires uh, in the contingent space. It's uh, running counter to some of those headlines uh, in our market data right now. And so uh, that would be another reason uh, that we are talking to large uh, buyers of labor of all types is they're just trying to understand what's happening Uh, with the overall marketplace, which skills are waxing versus waning in their consumption, how much do they cost, how much are they likely to cost in the future, 
Uh, and how long is it taking for people to land this type of talent? Um, the, the other piece now is beyond just the individual transaction of one worker in the classic contingent workforce capacity, but being able to do all that analytics in the less structured world of SOW, statement of work contracts, projects. Uh, so all of that under one extended workforce non-employee umbrella um, is we are the only place that someone can go to, to, to make sense of all their, their existing data in one place. Do you see any of those, um, those trends, um, Jason, being a harbinger or a lagging indicator? Do, either way, are you, you kind of, do you have the correlation between this likely means something else is coming, right? Can you, based on trends, can you, can you, do you have any thoughts on how you, what you've seen in the data as it kind of typically relates to economic, the macroeconomic environment? Yes. Um, so this, when you, when you, when we look at these types of trends as data scientists, um, you know, you have to be careful. Like the, the way, the way we do it is you, you come up with a claim or a theory and then, and then you beat the hell out of your claim or theory. And if it can survive being beaten up, we call that science, right? Uh, this idea was good enough. It could survive being beaten up. And the problem in such volatile markets is whatever claim you make, you're going to be surrounded by fuzziness. And so the one thing we see for sure is continued volatility. Everyone is hedging a bet against something. And the contingent marketplace is the ultimate in, uh, talent uh, hedge because you're making much less of a commitment. So what we did see, for example, in the start of the pandemic is we didn't see hiring go down. We just saw the engagement lengths shorten, uh, especially like in IT. So we saw just as much hiring. Rates didn't necessarily soften right away as we thought they would. Instead, we saw the engagement length shorten, and then it started to re-elongate as talent was again in, in scarce supply, and now we see the rates coming up 10%. And so this type of volatility led us to believe last month, we think headcount could start to come down, and all of a sudden in IT and, and software development, it severely rebounded. So it's very sector specific, it's very skill specific, it's very geographically specific, uh, and it's volatile um, like crazy all over the place. Uh, so you have to be that more so than usual. More so than usual. So the the um, if you've ever tracked Barry Asin at an SIA event, and he would give that classic slide, I think like you're talking about, you can track the stock market uh, versus the contingent market, and they would track pretty nicely in this sinusoidal kind of pattern. And now it's just static looks like static next to each other in each of these things, because you also have currency impacts. You have what's happening with unemployment and it's all of these things are month to month radical changes um, that there's no way that you can say one thing is a leading indicator of the other, other than that they're all super noisy and all reactions of each other. And I don't think that that'll slow down for at least a year. And it leads to a question, you know, what's your take on all the talk of recession and, and what impact is that going to have, you know, in, in contingent labor and what impact are we, we seeing right now in the regular workforce? Um, I've been saying for a while, I, I, I am a believer in the recession um, because the companies that need to be spending less are actively hiring procurement consultants to help them spend less. Uh, and so, and, and those procurement consultants are coming after us for data. So we, we see it firsthand that everyone is, is, is uh, girding down for something, uh, for something bad. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for the contingent labor space, because again, that's where there's that, that, that sense of less commitment. And in an era where there was less commitment to the employee, you know, employee tenures were coming down 
uh, precipitously uh, for, because of both sides of the equation, uh, the worker leaving as well as uh, the company not, not feeling as certain. So in a very contingent world, the idea that you can paper it that way explicitly, uh, I don't think that we'll see volume suffer there in the spaces of IT. I think spaces like non-IT non professional, I think we'll start to see more softening like that. I don't think light industrial uh, will suffer uh, necessarily because those jobs have been long in demand for, and, and I, don't, I don't see that softening necessarily through, through the year. So on the technology side, you know, one thing we keep seeing in the news is um, layoffs in Silicon Valley. How, what, what's, what is that really doing? You know, we're laying people off. Some of them are, are paid, you know, two times, three times more than what they'll get in other markets. What's really going on there? Well, uh, some of those companies uh, are clients of ours. And so we, we know um, that there are companies that conspicuously were trying to pay top quartile. That's something that they would ask us to help them prove. We want to prove that we pay top quartile. And now those same companies have a savings objective. And so on one hand, it, you know, you could say like that those might be the easier ones because you can prove that you're up, up higher in, in a distribution. Um, and so making that argument to, to someone on the other side of a table should feel easy because before you were proving that it was extra high. Um, so that, that was the case. I also think that in, in that environment where markups started to get higher, what the recruiter is paid, what the recruitment firm, I should say, is, is paid, not just the talent, that started to edge much higher than what we saw in prior softer markets like 10 years ago. So I think we'll see some, some tougher markups. I think it'll be harder on the recruitment firms, but I don't necessarily think that the volumes go away. Again, I think engagement lens come down. Um, but with this kind of, you, you hear a, a, a a Twitter laying off 11,000, you hear a Facebook laying off tens of thousands, or I don't remember the exact number, I don't want to quote it actually. Um, but it, with those numbers of those types of candidates hitting the marketplace, then it, it should make it easier for folks to find top talent that previously were having trouble. And again, it should be able to soften some of the things like markups where you're otherwise paying a recruitment firm top dollar to, to find that which is much more scarce. It's now less scarce. So you think that the labor that get, gets laid off will be that are that are used to paychecks will be looking at contingent opportunities? Do, do you see that happening? I, I do, especially in tech. Uh, yeah, because I, I think a lot of the stigma of what does it mean to take a tech pla a temp placement, to use the old jargon, uh, is it has less of a stigma. And so the idea that you might take a six month gig someplace else uh, after leaving Twitter. Um, shouldn't have any reduced sex appeal uh, compared to something else where, you know, 10 years prior, that was a temp, temp position um, and that would not be necessarily something that you'd want. And now in that six month gig, I think you can probably get that rate, that higher rate, because it's less of a commitment. Someone's looking to get a project done on a fixed period um, and they're willing to pay the dollar to get that done. Um, so I, I think that's a place where candidates can find the better rates uh, as they're out there. Again, in IT, in, in specialized software development, we don't see things slowing down and we see rates going up anywhere, you know, on average for those, we're seeing 17% increases in rates still ongoing uh, over the last few years. Um, and in certain cases, it's 30% plus. Yeah, there's a lot of these, um, drivers that have been long in play. This is this is one of them. Digital transformation projects are still underway. 
Um, <clears throat> so all that automation that folks were just accelerating through the pandemic, those weren't new things. Those were existing thoughts that were just accelerating through the pandemic. I don't see that stopping, no. And especially since uh, now the time horizon to how these companies see being competitive against each other, like in fintech, I don't see that arms race slowing down um, anytime soon. I think in certain pockets and certain sectors, for sure, it, could, it can be impacted. We saw that with oil and gas, but now a lot of that oil and gas type activity is coming back. You have this concept of guided buying then is, is really right. It does, is that dovetail into this conversation here? Is this, how did the two go together then? You've got this enormous data set, you got talent data exchange, but how do you kind of, I mean, are you, you have consultants on the ground or self-service or how does the guided buying kind of, how does so that really work? In, in a world where we've historically first sold advice person to person, um, then selling data and analysis uh, to a person to, who would then have to know what to do with it. Now doing a much better job of creating software workflows where an individual can interact with a software workflow and get the answers more directly. But that person, unfortunately, is still the corporate user, the person that would write the policy, that would, that would structure the rate card, uh, the person that would configure the VMS or the ATS to help those transactions happen in some scalable way. What it's not doing is impacting the direct requisitioner. And so what we're doing now is being able to, to deliver the analytic, not just to the person who's trying to craft the policy language, but also to the person who's making that, that talent sourcing decision uh, in that exact moment. And we're trying to do it on their terms. So it's not just we from corporate think you're spending too much. Here's a, here's, here's a, a, a variety that's lesser, but, we, but it costs less. So go down this path. That person is smart. That person's under a lot of pressure. They're going to find other ways to get their work done. Uh, they, they will not be convinced of taking a lesser alternative for less money. And so in the guided buying application, we're meeting that person on their terms. To, to deliver them what they want with the types of analytics that help them optimize their buy. Uh, so then the company gets what they want, which is better pricing with better terms that live up to their risk mitigation policies um, without the, the, the requisitioner feeling banged over the head uh, and less likely to, to do some non-compliant uh, workaround. Um, may not be uh, PC to say, depending on who everyone's customers are, but I always like to say like, you know, it's like, it's, it's like Hunts versus Heinz. Um, you know the difference when you're using Hunt's ketchup versus the Heinz ketchup. Uh, and so you can tell everyone, listen, it's less expensive. Uh, this is what, what, you know, usually you don't want to save that 50 cents when you're, when you're having a burger. You know, a lot of companies are, are trying to shift away from, uh, you know, trying to shift more towards the skills, uh, you know, skills-based hiring and, and selecting people based on skills rather than a lot of traditional kind of resume elements and that sort of thing. And, and really data becomes really critical in that. Tell us a little bit about how that in have to drive towards skills-based uh, buying there drives um, how people are making decisions today versus maybe what we were seeing a year or two ago. Yeah, it's, it's critically important because in today's workforce, the, the labels that we use for a given job title um, are, are less archetypal. You know, an accountant is an accountant. Well, not anymore. Uh, now accountants show up in, in every possible variety uh, with, with pink hair and three arms and whatever else. And same with software developers and same with, you know, most roles, the, the, the ways that they vary and come up depend upon these other attributes of their role. And in many cases, it's skills, 
Um, it may also be cert, 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 certifications. It could be education. It could be soft skills and other factors, years of experience in those areas. Um, and so people are trying to think like we see that as like the underlying genetics of what the job is. And then if you can reconstitute those genetics, you then know what the organism is. The problem is, uh, you know, since life has gone on and differentiated so much and people have been bad about job descriptions, you don't always have all those perfect little details in the job descriptions to perfectly reconstitute this is what work is. One easy example is most jobs require someone to know how to type uh, like in Microsoft Word or something like that. Um, but you don't list that for every single job that someone's doing that type of typing because it becomes ridiculous to do so. So job descriptions are imperfect. Long story longer, uh, because job titles are imperfect, they're vague, there's overlap between them, there's no standardization of their use, by being able to look at what are the clusters of underlying attributes or skills as referenced in the wild of these job descriptions and job titles and skill, skill buckets and whatever else, that's how you can, you can learn through machine learning what are the incremental contributions that those skills have when they are seen, observed under their job titles as they're typically described in the, in the wild. And so that's a multi-layer machine learning application that, that we go through to tease out those influences so we know not only what are the bits and pieces that describe this type of work, how do those bits and pieces impact price, how do those bits and pieces impact availability and, and the probability of filling in a given time frame. Um, all of those different things uh, have to be considered as no longer easy to just see the bucket of the job title. So what's that like then when you're trying to have that kind of conversation with typically someone in procurement, when you're really talking about talent and skills and hiring managers and getting work done? Right? What's that like? Is, have you, that seems like it would probably put a lot of pressure on, the, on that part of the ecosystem to figure out the right way to do this because you've got a, one person who's really trying to think a lot about price and then you've got everybody else who's trying to think about the work and what needs to get done and how to get it done. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's so the, there's there's two places it shows up. One is to the procurement person, my corporate user, and how they are then empowered with the, the right way to talk to their internal customer. Um, and so that they are in the right type of discourse with that person. The other way it shows up is directly to the requisitioner in, in the moment. Um, and so if we're able to say to the procurement person on this particular SOW, don't let them get away with charging this gigantic number for all of their software developers. You're only using this type of technology that demands that kind of price 20% of this project. You even see it in the line items. So for these other 80% of the line items, you don't have to pay for that specialized technology. You should be paying this other thing, which is 15% less, 25% less, depending on what it is. That's compelling. That's real money with a real argument. And then same thing the other way to the person that's their, that their end buyer, they get protected to say, ah, my special skill is, is, is being handled, even though uh, Susan Procurement is going after the savings. And so it, it brings empirical information right there. However, if I can get to the direct buyer because my dad is influencing them in their transaction, then we put dollar signs and clocks right there. And so they know by dragging this thing this way, it's going to about to get more expensive and take longer to do um, in, in, in classic shopping metaphors. And that's where we're trying to get smarter is not delivering analytic, but delivering the same type of influencing that every B2C app does 
we've all been benefiting from for years without getting training on it. It's just I, I react to dollar signs and clocks in the ways that seem intuitive. Been an interesting journey as, as analytics has really just become more part and parcel of our daily lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about the most complex types of data out there and how that gets distributed to the to the to we lay people like weather what could be more complex than meteorology it's like like the exact example of like among the most complex things out there but i can pick up my phone and if i see a little umbrella and if it's one raindrop versus three i just got a lot of information i just got a lot of data served to me that that's useful to me actually <laughs> No, it, it's really interesting to see anymore how how people expect very complex and huge amounts of data to be simplified down to something like that, where it just comes down to, hey, there's a sun icon on my phone. You know, meanwhile, you know, there's been millions of calculations done to come up with it. that sun exactly. icon should be there. And, and you really feel it uh, like with the election. Um and you, you see where people are trying to make their forecasts of where this is going and, and how volatile it can be as the different election results come in and what they mean based on their proportionality. And these are super complex probabilistic things. And I think that's one of the problems is analytics tends to, especially machine learning analytics, tends to think in these probabilistic types of ways. Most humans don't. You have to kind of really be expert in your field to, to feel that um, everyone else wants their answer, answers to be simplified. You know, everybody's in search of kind of the, the 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 magic eight ball that tells them what to do, and and you know, ultimately, even though you get all the data, you 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 have experts analyze it, you you get it down to a dashboard. You know, people still are going to find a way to make the wrong decision. Well, right? there was that classic a magic eight ball answer was more will be revealed, right? Right, right. <laughs> buy another magic eight ball was the uh, <laughs> the capitalist version. I love. Um, but I think that that's true, Mike, because um, I think we've learned, uh, you know, for the last, you know, whatever number of years that people will believe what they want to believe and use information to support that. And that's partly why I don't want to try to win um, an intellectual debate with someone with analytics. You know, it, you're too deep in a conversation. I, I can win a discussion with clocks and dollar signs because I'm only counting on them reacting to what they see in front of them. I'm not trying to overcome something any bigger than that. And so in the example of guided buying, for me to say to an end user, you should be using staff augmentation, not statement of work. Um, that conversation will go nowhere. But if along the path, as they're going through their, their statement of work transaction, just right next to what they're already going down, we show other cost alternatives. We show other suppliers offering the same type of work for different prices, and they're just seeing it on their terms and the range of possibility of where they are against it on their terms. That's a very different type of interaction than someone from corporate saying, you should be using this for this price. So it's about delivering it on their terms. Kayak. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't have to feel like a, an overly frugal buyer when the data is right there in front of me and I'll make my decisions. Where do I save? Where do I splurge? Right on my terms because burgers are better with Heinz. There's there gotta you be go. a <laughs> you gonna, are you getting kickbacks there for that? No, I'm not. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's been some conversation. I've been starting to read more and more on the HR blogs about talent hoarding. Um, and, and, you know, and, and this whole recession and, and right, the uncertainty and do we keep talent? Do we, 
you know, and, and in contingent labor, there's been a long conversation around direct sourcing, um, but really nascent, right? Is it, do you think that right, this, is it, so like COVID was a forcing function. Do, do you think this recession is also going to kind of drive certain things as, you know, a year or two from now, we'll look back and we'll say, huh, that really drove some key things in, in contingent labor thinking. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I guess on a practical level, uh, maybe, um, you know, maybe the not as hot of a topic, but I think just remoteness and knowing how to do it better, um, what that means to onboard someone into a remote scenario, how to think about why we care about office versus remote, which I think is only accelerative for the contingent workforce in, in the broadest sense, um, because that creates further need for attachment and it, and it enables the detachment where now it can be a full ocean away matters much less. Um, so I think it, it taught us how to be much better at remote and, and knowing that security still matters. Um, like we couldn't just abandon all of information security while we better enabled remoteness. So I think that that was a, a really important part. I think it also taught us the lesson that we have not yet learned like the solution to of just how frail is the relationship between uh, employee and employer? Um, what does it mean to be loyal? And, and so like the idea of talent hoarding to me sounds you know half crazy because I don't know who thinks they have the luxury of being able to hold on to people that have you know free will. Um, you're you're kind of in that zone. How, how do you even do that? Right. It's, yeah. it's, you, you guys have trouble retaining people when things are great. And, and now you're sitting exactly. here thinking you're going to be able to retain them. It's, exactly. it's harder than it looks. No, exactly. Or, or, or it becomes you're only keeping them there with money and it becomes either unaffordable or it's, it's, it's not working in the ways that, that you were expecting anyway. So then is a, um, is a direct sourcing a myth? Is that really an illusion? I mean, if, if you got a whole bunch of people, so. no? Yeah, what do you think, right? It's, well, I, it's a I group of people that you've worked with before, but are, are they really accessible to you just because you have a collection of people you once upon a time had in, in, inside your walls? Does that mean anything? Yeah, so I guess uh, with anything in this field that we use, uh, you know, jargon or, or, or acronyms, we have to be careful. So like depending on how, what we mean by direct sourcing, in my opinion, it's something the Europeans have been doing for decades um, and we're just catching on and giving it a label. Um, I remember back then when they would say the, uh, we, we would say the U.S. is six years ahead of Europe, and now they're like, thank you, actually, it was the other way around. You're, <laughs> you're just putting new jargon to what we've been doing all along. Um, and so I think there's some of that. Um, and I think people have finally caught on that the, the brand, the killer brand is probably not the staffing agency. It's probably going to be the company that people actually want to go work for. Um, and so how do we leverage that in smarter ways? Then if you go further to building the talent pools, talent clouds, private, public, all of those different things, I'm, I'm for sure a believer because we know that there's that much repeat use of talent. I do not think that it's a one size fits all solution for every company, let alone every type of talent in every company. And I don't think there's been sufficient thoughtfulness around how to tailor it to which pools for which reasons. And what does it mean to interact with a pool when they're not on the gig and make that really work? So I think there's still... They're still maturing around that, but I but I think it's there's elements where it does work today, and I think it will continue to find its place. But I, I'll just add to that: I, I'm not a believer in the myth of loyalty to a, a staffing company. I've yet to see that get pulled off. Um, I'm waiting since we're not in this business. I can give this pitch. I, I think someone out there at some point will create enough of a killer app where 
I, I feel that by putting all of my data and telling that company all of myself and they're participating in how I learn more and how assessing my goodness and like there's a lot that the candidate wants where if I really park all of myself there, I think something like that would engender loyalty, mm. um, which could then potentially be distributed to, to different yeah. parties. So do you think but, then, then the blockchain Web3 stuff yeah. plays into that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it has to, you know, because it's, it's going to be about trust and control. Um, tr trust of that person feeling good about the solution and trust that the information coming out of it is credible. Um, but I, th I think there's a there there and that will do away with the resume and lots of other things. So as we are, I mean, so, I mean, we are, we're in the thick of it now. Some even say we're in the recession now, but is there any kind of key advice you'd have for our listeners here as they're kind of thinking about 2023 resolutions, using data, any kind of, any, any thoughtful kind of good advice? <laughs> uh, uh, prognostications, yeah. trends, yeah, anything that you might kind of. I think um, the, the, the advice that we follow uh, ourselves and the things that we prepare our partners for and our clients for is to just don't don't assume that what you knew yesterday about your customer and therefore your workforce needs, whether it's your internal customer as requisitioners or your external customer as end buyer of talent, whatever that may be, it's changing. And so if you were, if you were aiming at yesterday's target, it's likely wrong by enough that you need to look into it and know that it's likely to change again. And so figuring out where you need to be most closely tied to that information source so that you have less whiplash on what it means to be flexible and adjusting uh, through this period. That's my, that's my best advice. Stay closer to your data with greater frequency than ever. Yeah. That's all, staying close to data is always great advice, Jason. So every guest, I always ask a few questions that are always the same, and I'm going to ask you these. So um, kind of pop quiz, but uh, questions are pretty easy. So first one, um, what business book has been really influential to you? What books helped you the most? Uh, the, the book that has helped me the most, I don't, does it have to like be a literal business book? Um, Not necessarily. Uh, thinking fast and thinking slow um, is uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, mm -hmm. Nobel Prize winner, just talking about the brain being more than one thing. Uh, and that was really instrumental in, in thinking about giving users things that they don't have to think about. They want to use a, their system one brain, the part that scans and reacts. Uh, when you give them a, a block of text and a series of graphs, they have to use system two, as this book would describe and think really hard about it and you're taxing them and they don't want to do that. And so as we're trying to influence people to do the right thing, we have to make it easier to use that other front part of their brain. Sorry if that's a longer answer than you were expecting. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great, there's no wrong answer and that's a, actually a great answer and a great book. Um, next question, um, this is more personal, favorite movie? Um, my, my gut, answer that I've given for many years now is Shawshank. I'm a Shawshank Redemption mm. or the Shawshank Redem Redemption. Um, but pushed further, I'd say Big Lebowski or Duck Soup. Ooh. What about Duck Soup? Right. I don't know about that one. What's Duck Soup about? That's the Marx Brothers. Uh, oh, please, back. I implore Sorry. you on this Friday evening, please go see Marx <laughs> Brothers Duck Soup. I think it's amongst the pinnacle of comedies. Cool. All right. And then the last question, is there anything that we uh, didn't ask you that we should have? 
Um, what kinds of personal questions we didn't cover? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think so, but I guess the one thing that I would, I would look to, to reemphasize is, um, you know, in terms of like what, what's changed most about the contingent, uh, workforce world from the start of my career to now, I, I mentioned it earlier, uh, but I think it's worth re re repeating is that the stigma is gone. The idea that a temp role is lesser. Um, that, that, that is, if, if it's not completely gone, it's certainly not one of the top three things being mentioned and it's not a driver of outcomes for sure. People like longer term opportunity. So people like full-time employment, just like they like a 12 month gig better than a nine month gig. In most cases, some, there are certain sectors that like shorter, like in LI, but usually in a professional gig, longer is better. But outside of that, um, there's 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 no uh, stigma, negative stigma to taking a gig. It's it's now seen as a way that someone more rapidly diversifies their career set. What what do you attribute that to? Is is that the the upworks of the world and the gig economy, the Ubers? Is that or what do you think? I don't think it's the Uber side of the gig economy. I I think it was something that was happening even prior to that where technology projects just happen that way and technology is changing faster and faster. And so it's just the acceleration of technological change that there became like no such thing as having your in-house expert in blank for very long because blank turned into the next blank. And so you always needed a, another level specialist around at least for some period of time. And that became, you know, that became a high appeal. The consultant became, so was, that was part of that transition of the word from temp to consultant. And then, and more, more temp houses started doing consulting and more consultants were really doing temps, temp, temp, uh, development and became the same thing. That's my theory. So it's interesting though, cause you know, in, in a classic HR world where you have talent management and learning, right. And the employer takes on the responsibility of trying to grow the skills that they may need where, I mean, in a gig world, and you're talking about this need for always having on demand access to some expert, but how do you, how do people then develop that expertise if. Is it all OJT kind of? Absolutely. Yeah. Because this is the same world that in, in our clients, we're hearing from folks saying we no longer care about education as a requirement. Don't need to see masters anymore. Don't need to see bachelors anymore. It doesn't have to be a, a specialized degree anymore because it's acknowledged that most people are learning uh, on YouTube. Um, I mean, my, my CTO will pick up a new language on YouTube overnight and because it's that good and people are learning on the job. It's not necessarily I go to school to do it that way. That's that's too slow and it doesn't work. Uh, it's less effective in the technology world, especially to these types of technologists. Jason, it's amazing to me how much I, you see of, of what we were doing five, seven years ago in software engineering all of a sudden is now mainstream. Exactly. And, and I think there's just certain bellwether professions where you see this, where, where things are normalized, remote workers normalized in software engineering a long time ago, COVID hits, everybody does it. Um, it's amazing to see just how quickly those things get adopted. And, you know, maybe for a lot of the people watching this, they want to look at what the future looks like. Look at what your software engineering team's doing right now. Exactly. And yeah, right, they, they've been working on a distributed basis, uh, checking code in and out from a 12 hour time zone away um, wrestling with all those issues with the most sensitive IP in, in the entirety of the enterprise, at least for some. Um, so yeah, I very much agree. Great point. Yeah. And so some days I look at what we do and, 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 you know, at, at Pivot CX, I build the product. 
I look at it and go, it's amazing. It all works. But the, the reality is, you know, we, we do it this way. Then we build all the tools to do it, to let everybody else do it this way. And so it's really became a, uh, kind of an enabler. And, and even our product at Pivot kind of came from that. It was how do we exactly. enable people to, to do things a new way? So uh, anyhow, for, for David uh, Bernstein, uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, uh, just before we go, what's the best place if someone wants to learn more about Brightfield, where should they go? Uh, Il Buco Ristorante on Bond Street. Um, sorry. Uh, brightfield.com, uh, is our website address. Um, and when we're not having pasta at Obuco, you can find us at brightfield.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Again, Jason Ezradi, CEO of brightfield.com. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Great conversation.